Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 6. And as you do so, uh, I wonder if you've ever used the phrase, don't judge me. So perhaps you've been at a birthday party and you've just tried to sneakily grab, not, not a second, but a third helping of cake. And as you slide it onto your plate unassumingly, like you just discovered there was cake at the party, uh, you see someone uh, watching you out of the corner of their eye and you just kind of laugh and say, don't judge me. Uh, or maybe you binge watched a show and you covered four seasons in a week and a half and you're sharing it with a friend and you say, don't judge me. It was a good show. Or maybe at the family Thanksgiving table, politics comes up and it becomes quickly apparent that your political persuasion is at odds with everyone else at the dinner table. And so you smile and you say, don't judge me. Uh, it can be a helpful phrase, a helpful remark in awkward situations, right? It can often be used as a way to sort of brush off criticism, a sort of force field we can put up to deflect any negative feedback. Many times we use the phrase to say basically, yeah, you may not agree with what I'm doing, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm my own person. I do me. You deal with it. Indeed, many people who have never read the Bible know the famous line Jesus uses in our text this morning when he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Well, what did Jesus mean? Did he mean for us to use this phrase as a sort of rallying cry to live out who we are on the inside? Did he mean it to become a sort of individualist anthem, daring anyone who would tell us we should change? One comedian says, if something is being talked about by somebody, somewhere, about something, you may not have an opinion about it because you're wrong and it's going to offend someone. He's being sarcastic, of course, but many look at our passage this morning and see that as pretty much what Jesus is saying too. We should all live the way we want to live, and no one is to judge. And in part, that's true, because no one can perfectly judge. God is the only ultimate judge. We are not but is Jesus saying we should never have any critique or judgment call on the way others live? Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 6. And this morning we'll be in verses 37 through 42. So Luke is writing out some of Jesus' teachings here in the latter portion of chapter 6. Last week we saw Jesus exhorting his followers to love their enemies and this week, we come to Jesus' words on judgment. So follow along as I read for us Luke 6, starting in verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. 
For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. All right, so church family, to help us and guide us as we study this passage together this morning, let me suggest for us two things Jesus is calling us to as his followers in this passage. First, Jesus calls us to mercy, not condemnation. Jesus calls us to mercy, not condemnation. And second, Jesus calls us to humility, not hypocrisy. Jesus calls us to humility, not hypocrisy. And I hope that in this way, we see clearly what kind of love and what kind of life the true follower of Jesus Christ will exhibit. And we'll be able to mature as we become more like him. So first, church, Jesus calls us to mercy, not condemnation. So if you look back at verse 36, Jesus has just said, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And now in verse 37, he says to his disciples, Judge not, and you will not be judged. There it is, one of the world's most favorite Bible verses. But is it really what many make it out to be? See, what's interesting is that Jesus elsewhere actually commends the act of judging. I'm not talking about judging only as a sort of negative denouncement. But judging is a way of speaking truth, making a determination. So in, in John chapter 7, for example, Jesus is opposed. And he, he says in verse 24 of John chapter 7, Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, just make sure you don't judge him for it. No, that's not what he says. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And therein, after that, follows a process of confronting someone for sin. Make a judgment. Carry out that decision in a conversation with your brother, is what Jesus is implying or saying. And as we move into the New Testament and see the Church of Christ develop and, and, and mature and increase, we continue to see ways the church must judge if they're to follow Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is helping the church figure out how to discipline an unrepentant sinner in their midst. And he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So how are we to square those exhortations to judge rightly with what Jesus says here in Luke 6? Judge not. Don't judge. 
Well, simply, we just have to understand Jesus isn't speaking about judgment in any and all situations. Now, we must all make judgment calls in our lives, especially if we're to be obedient to Christ. Dads need to make judgments on the boys dating their daughters. Citizens need to make judgments on candidates to vote for. Churches must make judgments about a person's profession of faith and whether they're exhibiting fruit of that faith, which we'll look at next week. Jesus is not saying we must be convictionless. No, he's speaking about judgment that comes from a harsh, superior heart. So as we keep reading, Jesus says in verse 37, Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So if judgment of someone else is condemnatory and not pointing them towards ultimate restoration and redemption, Jesus says, don't judge. Why? Because you'll be judged and condemned in the same way. As the scholar Daryl Bach has said, the standard one uses in relation to others is the standard that God will apply. Judging others is weighty business. We must not do it flippantly. We must be careful and gracious in our judgments of others, knowing we ourselves will be accountable to the judge over all. So Jesus says that instead... We are to forgive and show mercy. He says there at the end of verse 37, Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. God will see your mercy. There in verse 38, Jesus uses the image of a man collecting grain from a seller. And he shows how the seller who's selling the grain doesn't shortchange the man who's buying it, but he pours grain into his lap, Jesus says, in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Oh, what's, being in, what's being shown here? I'm not sure how good an illustration this is, but this is what has come to my mind as a more modern example of what Jesus is getting at. So imagine the days when you could go to Chick-fil-A. And not just through the drive-thru, but you could actually go up to the counter, scan your app, say hi to the person, and buy some food. And, and imagine when you're, when you're asking for a soda. If you've done that, you might have noticed how the cashier fills up your soda. So say you're getting a Coke because that's the best soda. And, and you put it underneath, uh, the, the cashier puts it underneath the, the, the spigot, and he fills it up to the brim, but then he waits for the carbonation to settle back down, and then he fills it up again, and then he waits, and he might fill it up again. So you are sure that you're getting the full measure of Coke. In like manner, Jesus is saying God will overwhelmingly, abundantly give to those who are generous with others. This is not speaking about earning salvation. The Bible is clear we cannot earn God's favor in our sin. Now this is speaking of those who would follow after Christ. As we live as his followers, this is how we will act as those who are blessed by God. Jesus says there at the end of verse 38, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So church family, our first thing to see here is that Jesus' followers, you and I, 
are called to be merciful, not condemning of those around us. <clears throat> Our judgment is to be made with an eye towards love and towards grace, not out of gleeful one-upsmanship of one another. So, consider how you interact with those outside the faith, those behaving in a way you see as ungodly. Say, Christian, you come across a coworker whose lifestyle is one you know God disapproves of. What is your heart posture towards that person? Is your heart posture one of disdain or distress? What do I mean by that? I, distress will lead you to implore that person lovingly to consider their ways and consider the gospel and turn to God for a, a fulfilling, loving life, just how he, was, he has made them to live. Disdain, on the other hand, will lead you to condemn that person and write them off even before you speak to them. Distress will cause you to, to hope and pray for their redemption and point that person towards salvation. Disdain will only condemn with no urgent call to follow Christ and find him mercy. I wonder what you see most at work in your heart. Leon Morris has said, when God accepts people, God's grace changes them. A forgiving spirit is evidence that the person has been forgiven. Jesus calls us to mercy, church, not condemnation. <clears throat> Second point, and finally in a bit longer, Jesus calls us to humility, not hypocrisy. Look with me at verse 39. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus is saying that someone who would attempt to lead someone else must be able to see where they're headed. Otherwise, that partnership will end in catastrophe. So how does that relate to the judgment we just saw? Well, in our passage next week, we'll see that Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is the guide we need to follow above all else. But I think that there may also be warnings here for those who would teach others and for us as we follow teachers. Following an arrogant person who does not examine his own way will lead to destruction. No one will see the pit coming. We'll all fall in. In verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Again, Jesus is our ultimate teacher. We must follow him. Yet I, I also think we can use this text to be reminded here of the wisdom we should have as we follow those who would teach us about Christ. Those we follow we will begin to look like, to imitate, to mimic, take care. If you peek ahead into verse 41, we can, we can think about helpful questions here. Who are you following? Do they know themselves well enough to receive instruction and so not lead those following them astray? 
Do they lead you primarily to Jesus or to themselves? Particularly for those who would seek to lead you spiritually in the home or in the church. Do they follow Christ? Are they teachable? Christian, be careful who you follow. Are you following someone self-assured of their own wisdom? Or someone who consistently asks for feedback and counsel? This is one of the reasons we see qualifications for the church elder in Scripture. An elder must be above reproach. They must show godliness in their lives. Church, pray for your elders. Pray that they would be men worth emulating, worth imitating, worth following insofar as they follow Christ. And then Jesus concludes in verses 41 and 42 with a humorous illustration. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The, the imagery here is actually pretty funny. So a speck here means a sort of fragment, perhaps of, of wood, while the, the log mentioned portrays a, a sort of weight-bearing beam in a house. Basically, Jesus is drawing a comparison between the very great and the minutely small. And he's saying, how can you ignore or, or not even recognize the huge log in your own eye, the sin you struggle with so acutely, and instead find satisfaction in poking, poking at the smaller problem in the eye of your brother? Do you see how ridiculous you're being? So, my wife and I are both big fans of the Anne of Green Gables stories by Ella Montgomery. It's one of the reasons we honeymooned in Prince Edward Island. And if you've read those books or watched the movies, you'll know the character of Mrs. Rachel Lind. Rachel Lind is the quintessential busybody, always poking around in other people's business. But, but what's funny and usually frustrating is how totally lacking in self-awareness she is. So, at the beginning of the first book, after meeting Anne, who's the main character for the first time, Rachel speaks harshly towards Anne and judgmentally. Anne, if you know the story, loses her cool, yells back, there's a big kerfuffle. Uh, later, an apology is orchestrated and things get cordial again. Uh, but as that apology uh, is in the rearview mirror, Rachel turns to Marilla, whom Anne is living with, and, and this is what she says, part of what she says. She says, of course, Anne has an odd way of expressing herself. A little too, well, too kind of forcible, you know? But she'll likely get over that now that she's come to live among civilized folks. It's funny when you read it, but it's also a little grating and irritating. Because she is the most forcible person in the whole of the island, pretty much, when you're reading the story. It's, it's grating, it's irritating, but it's also convicting in light of this text. 
I think we're all a little like Rachel Lynn when we judge other people, aren't we? We're all in danger of completely missing what others see so clearly in us. See, judging others makes it all the more probable that we'll make fools out of ourselves. Judging others is a weighty business. And church, this, this passage is so, so applicable to our lives as a church community, a church family that's joined together in covenant through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has called us, in part, as a church, so that we can helpfully judge one another and point one another to him. This is part of why we're covenanted together as a body of believers here in Western Loudoun County. So take Hebrews chapter 3. There we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Yikes, how how can we escape? How can we avoid this sort of self-deception? Well, the author continues and says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are called into a church community where we challenge each other not to be overcome by the deceitfulness of our own hearts. This is one of the reasons we emphasize so much at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, the idea of belonging to a community of believers, of committing yourself to the church, to be known and to know others. So in our church covenant, we promise one another that we will faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Church, let me start with me. If I ever start living in a way that is at odds with the gospel I preach, run after me, rebuke me, judge me. But don't judge me to condemn me. Only God can do that, right? Judge me so that I might be restored to you and to God. This is one of the high callings and purposes of the church. Uh, Many, I know, think of the idea of church discipline as, as mean and negative, but it's actually very necessary and grace-giving when done biblically. Church discipline is never meant to condemn, but to warn, to instruct. It's aimed at restoration and repentance and joy. It's gracious, not harsh, not mean-spirited. In a way, if you will bear with this analogy or illustration, in a way, we all, as members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, have committed to being humble, compassionate, spiritual ophthalmologists, eye doctors, graciously knowing one another well enough to help each other see, see more clearly our need, our sin, so that we can see more deeply the love of Christ and run to him. So... How can we grow in challenging each other well as a church? How can we avoid judgmentalism, harsh criticism that Jesus denounces, and instead judge in a way that's life-giving, that honors Christ and loves and cherishes our brothers and sisters in Christ? I think Jesus gives us the answer. Because he doesn't say here in verses 41 and 42, he doesn't say, don't ever, ever take the speck out of your brother's eye. No, he says, Just do it well. 
Do it humbly, knowing where your own faults lie so that you might be gracious and humble and merciful towards others. See, the answer to building a gracious, loving, yet rebuking Christian community is to start with your own heart. A, a surefire way for Loudoun Valley Baptist Church to become a stuffy, legalistic church, a, a suffocatingly moralistic church, all about do's and don'ts, is for us all to become professional speck snatchers while avoiding our own hearts. The gospel has no place in a church like that. See, any religion can make you a professional speck snatcher. Any religion can make you proud in your own accomplishments and haughty towards others. But the gospel must reach your heart. Friend, if you never see your own heart and how desperately in need of grace you are, you will never need the gospel. So Christian, how are you doing in this area? I wonder how quickly do you see your own sin when others confront it in you? How defensive do you get when others speak into your life? What are you most critical of in others, in others' lives? And have you ever searched your own heart for that same problem to see if you're avoiding a log in your own eye? Church, we are not to be blind, but humble guides with eyes wide open to our own souls and God's redeeming grace to his word that, like a scalpel, opens up our hearts so we might see our sin and our need for him. A church that is full of humble accountability instead of professional speck snatching is a delightful church to behold and a delightful church to belong to. Jesus calls us to be humble, not hypocritical. He calls us to be transparent, not arrogant. And in that sort of gospel culture then, with that as our foundation, taking specks, taking splinters out of one another's eyes continues to be painful, but becomes painfully redemptive, painfully gracious. Church, make no mistake, this is, <clears throat> this is challenging stuff. This is not easy. So even as your pastor, as I preach Sunday by Sunday, I can often struggle with feeling hypocritical because often the stuff I'm challenging you with is the exact stuff I struggle with too. So how dare, how dare I stand up and exhort you if I don't preach this stuff to my heart first? If you think of it, pray for me. Pray that I would always preach first to myself and then to you. For all of us, I think one of the applications of this text is to work harder on letting people into our mess before we speak into theirs. And church family, as I think about it, I think God has given us a golden opportunity to put this passage into practice right now and in the coming months. So COVID-19 is still a clear and present danger. Today marks our eighth, can you believe it? Eighth consecutive Sunday, not meeting in person, and that is sad. 
we all want this to be done, we want it to be over with, we want to get back to normal, we want to meet again, but we've realizing again and again, it's just not that simple. We're not sure when we'll be permitted to do that, and once we are permitted to do that, we're not sure what we will do about that. I mean, should we begin to meet in smaller groups? Should we meet outdoors? Should we stay online until the venue we have booked is available? I don't know the answers to these questions. And we're going to have to be navigating these things in the weeks and months to come. But one thing I do know is that as we sort through this, what is for us at least an unprecedented challenge, we will have various different convictions and conclusions among the members of our church about what we should do. So some of us will tend to be more conservative and cautious. Others will be less so. Some of us will want to think primarily about public health. Others will be concerned mostly with the economy. And others will wonder why we can't be concerned about both at the same time. So church, how would Jesus advise us to carry out our calling as a church in a time like this? How would Luke 6, 37 through 42, counsel us in being loving and merciful to each other in a time like this? Because, let's be honest, this is a ready-made opportunity also for Satan to sow division in our midst. How can we fight that? Well, we fight it with humility and self-examination. We don't fight it by not having an opinion. We fight it by loving others with a different opinion from ours because we trust and share the same Jesus. So Kosti Hinn, who's a pastor in Arizona, has recently written on this, on this kind of <clears throat> reopening the churches after a pandemic, or even in the midst of one. And he, he says at the end of his article, Look, when this crisis begins to wind down, there will be plenty of people who got some things right and plenty of people who got some things wrong. There will be those who blew things out of proportion and those who didn't take things as seriously as they should have. Some will take longer to come back to the office. Others will rush in or are already there. What will, what will it matter, he says, if we reassimilate only to end up socially distant again, not because of a virus, but because of our inability to love others who approach COVID-19 differently than we do? And his last two words in the article are, choose love. He doesn't mean be a doormat, don't have an opinion. He means be compassionate. Be like Christ. And friends, this is the good news. See, Jesus didn't just come to preach this to us or preach this at us. He came to live it for us. See, Jesus was judged unjustly. Jesus was condemned harshly. In Mark chapter 14, we see a little snippet of his last hours. And we see the high priest talking to the crowd and saying, You have heard his blasphemy, meaning Jesus. What is your decision? Mark writes, And they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. Church, our sin condemned Jesus when he had done no wrong. 
And Jesus permitted our sin to condemn him so he could save us. In John 3, 17, Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, friends, we're all sinners. We've all rejected God's authority, and we all deserve his wrath. But Jesus came to take that wrath for us on the cross, so that if any would turn to him in repentance and faith, they might be forgiven, not condemned, but forgiven. Jesus was condemned. So we can rejoice and say with the Apostle Paul, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing reality we've been reborn into. And friend, if you're, if you're tuning in and you're not a Christian, the Bible says you are worthy of condemnation from God the Judge. So we don't condemn you. But we are telling you God will. And so our grace-filled plea to you is to turn from your sin before it's too late. Turn to Jesus and receive God's mercy. Turn to him and be saved. If you have questions about that, you can contact our church via the, the Facebook page that you're watching this on, or you can check our website and email me, jacob at loudonvalley.org. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to turn to Jesus and receive mercy, not condemnation. And church family, has this sort of mercy sunk into your life and impacted the way you treat others? One author uh, has written a commentary on this passage, and he says in part, Despite our sin, God has loved and forgiven us. He has graciously declined to judge or condemn us. If that is true, then, how can we have a judgmental or critical spirit toward others? Church, may we be a gospel-saturated family of believers. May we be a church that speaks truth to one another only insofar as we have allowed the life-giving truth of the gospel to work itself deep into our own hearts, making us more like Jesus. If that's the kind of culture we build at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, it'll be a culture that attracts people not to us, but to Jesus. Isn't that what we want? Let's pray. Lord, we are prone to pride and arrogance in our opinion of others. None of us is exempt from this. In our church, even, we are given to comparison and to either feeling inferior to others or superior to others. And a pandemic doesn't change that. Even with screens in between us and other church members, we still struggle with judgmentalism. But Lord, your gospel makes everything level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners in need of mercy. And so we come again to your throne of grace and ask for mercy once again. And we plead that your mercy to us would then make us merciful to one another. Lord, may we not try to do this and just 
and just try to do it better this week. But may we just rejoice in the gospel mercy shown to us and pray that that would be exhibited and evidenced to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all for now, church family. I hope this difference in, uh, in, in kind of streaming the sermon uh, was helpful to you tonight. We will meet again for a Zoom prayer meeting at 7 p.m. All are invited. You can bring a friend if you'd like. Uh, and you can see uh, the email I sent out uh, with more details about that. If you didn't get the email, again, email me, jacob at loudonvalley.org, so we can uh, get that link to you. But for now, let's sing together the doxology as we close. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Love you all.